Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. A decisive victory for Donald Trump in Iowa. I get the lowdown from Republican donor Frank Lavin on what this means for the US election and for the world. Then, a state of emergency in Ecuador. I asked the country's president about cracking down on gangs, plus settler designs on Gaza. We have a special report on the vision of Israel's far right. Also ahead, a strongman president. The New York Times columnist Zeynep Tufekci joins Hari Srinivasan to explain Trump's lot on America's far right. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. It's the day after the night before in America's presidential politics. The starting gun was fired in Iowa and former President Donald Trump won the caucus convincingly, taking more than half the vote, this despite facing a slew of civil and criminal charges and after attempting to overturn the 2020 election. Here he is speaking after the Iowa result. People in our country are great. They're all great. It's, uh, we love Iowa, but they're all great. They only want to see one thing. They want our country to come back. They're embarrassed by what's going on. Our country is laughed at all over the world. They're laughing at us and they want our country to come back. They want America. You know, they want us to be great again. It's a very simple MAGA, make America great again. It is the same speech all these years later, but if evangelicals were always going to put Trump over the top, the real battle was for second place and a so-called convincing alternative to Trump. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis eked out a narrow lead over the former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Now all eyes are turned towards New Hampshire's primary, which is next week. Our next guest, GOP fundraiser and donor Frank Lavin, is part of the old guard of Republicans, if we can put it that way, who refused to support Trump back in 2016, who believes in policy. And before that, he served in Ronald Reagan's White House. Now he's putting his support firmly behind Haley. And he's joining me from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, Frank Lavin, so let me ask you, how, how hard is the hangover? Are you, are you, you know, are you suffering today or what? Well, it was a good day for Donald Trump, Christian. Thank, thank you for having me. But on. that is not your candidate. That's why I asked uh, got, you. That's why I asked not, you. That's not that's not my candidate. I'm for Nikki Haley, and she placed a I would say a respectable third. But of course, it was disappointing because we we're hoping for a respectable second. So it was not a the night we wanted last night for Nikki Haley. But next week is New Hampshire, and we get to try again. So why do you think, Frank Levin, that next week might be different? And how much did you really think Haley would play second in Iowa? Well, it was close, Christiana. It was only one or two percentage points off, so it was a plausible goal. It was a reasonable uh, uh, target. And unfortunately, we fell a little bit short. It's almost an even split between DeSantis and Haley, but he did creep out a little bit ahead of her, so, so be it. But New Hampshire should be a more favorable state for a few reasons. One, remember Chris Christie was polling in the low teens 
in New Hampshire, and he's since dropped out. So we believe most of that vote does go to Nikki Haley. The second important point is Governor Sununu, very popular, very effective governor, is 100% committed, enthusiastic, energetic, and working hard for Nikki Haley. So you have some local support. Remember, the governor in Iowa, God bless her, was supporting Donald Trump. So now the shoe's on the other foot, and we think we've got a little bit of a tailwind in New Hampshire that we just didn't have in Iowa. Okay, so before I get to New Hampshire, let me ask you for your analysis on Trump. It was his to win, right? I mean, it is the evangelical heartland. Mm. Um, there was no doubt that they were still going to vote for him. But how do you assess how he sort of has resurged? When do you think the, tr the Trump surge happened because he was kind of, you know, lagging, I think, for, for a long time, uh, you know, before the last year, so to speak. Right. Well, well, he had, uh, I think, two things going for him. One is the alternatives in the Republican side were split. There were eight Republicans at the first debate, and it just took months and months and months for it to winnow down to one or two. So that's enormous advantage to the leader, the, the so-called so, so incumbent like Donald Trump. That's one advantage. Two, I've got to say, whatever you think of Donald Trump and his policies, he has the most uh, uh, effective emotional engagement with the audience. He, he might not have the best policies, he might not have the most substance, but boy, in terms of getting, playing to people's emotions, getting people to feel unhappy or happy or outraged, uh, he does that, I think, better than any candidate today. What do you make of, of other analysis that I've heard, people who talk to voters as they came out of, or caucuses, as they came out from casting their, their voice? Um, for instance, uh, some people saying that they felt much better off under Trump and, you know, they want to go back to that. Whereas the economy is actually better today than it was at the beginning, at the end of Trump's um, presidency. Others saying that they actually not only like him despite some of the outrageous things he says, but because of, most particularly, that horrible comment about, you know, Asian and African blood of immigrants, you know, poisoning uh, American blood. People actually like that, and these are meant to be evangelicals. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to uh, figure all of this out. I think you're right that he enjoys being a bit offensive, being a bit outrageous, and he enjoys getting a, a critical reaction. And it, it, if nothing else, it guarantees he's front and center. So that is a tactic I think he regularly uses of stepping on other people's toes, so to speak, and then getting criticized for it. But there's two elements that he plays into, I think, very effectively. One, uh, Joe Biden is viewed with broad disfavor in terms of his immigration policy. I think Americans are concerned what they perceive as something close to open borders and Biden just not on top of his obligation. So that is one favor that plays directly into Trump's strength because Trump is viewed as the most uh, orthodox, if you will, on border controls. And second is just Biden himself, Biden's age, his feebleness, his frailty. Uh, so you do evoke this nostalgia to say, can we get a president who is more alive, more alert. And whatever, again, whatever weaknesses Trump has, and I think he has many, he has a stage presence that can be electric. And it's a sharp contrast with Joe Biden. So I want you to then sort of describe Nikki Haley's stage presence. I mean, she's certainly come out fighting. Yeah. She has been very, very, you know, yeah. energetic uh, with the others. You know, the woman yeah. in the middle is all these men really holding her own in, in many more ways than, than one. Um, she did, as we say, come in a slight third. Let's just listen to what she said uh, after this, the, the results. 
I can safely say, tonight, Iowa made this Republican primary a two-person race. Our campaign is the last best hope of stopping the Trump-Biden nightmare. Okay, so she gave it her best, even in, in a disappointing finish. What does she actually have to do in New Hampshire? I think she's got to more or less win. I say more or less because, let's face it, if she gets 49% or 48%, I think that's a huge embarrassment for Trump. So he might technically have 51%, but boy, is that a punch in the nose to Donald Trump. But she's got to really outperform. She went, she had roughly 20 or 19% in Iowa. If she takes that up to 50% in New Hampshire, that is quite an impressive accomplishment. But there's a lot at stake there. She cannot come in third in New Hampshire, and she can't come in second, but very far back in the pack. She's got to show that she can win. And do you think that she has every opportunity to come in second somewhere because DeSantis has kind of chosen not to campaign in New Hampshire? Yeah, DeSantis just doesn't have the sort of position and the personality that I think appeals to voters in New Hampshire. So I think it was wise of him to pull out. Uh, and that's really good news for Nikki Haley as well. As I said, he's got... Uh, her vote, her base vote, which was in the 30s in New Hampshire in the polls, she's going to have a big chunk of Chris Christie's as well. So it's not a bad starting point for her. She's She goes into New Hampshire with a reasonable chance of outperforming, a reasonable chance of pulling even with Donald Trump. Um, clearly, you're, you're, you're voicing what many, um, I, I guess, I uh, do we call them? Do we call you old-style Republicans, non-MAGA Republicans, anti-Trump Republicans? Certainly, people are looking for an alternative. But there are also critics of Nikki Haley's. For instance, Tim Alberta, who's written uh, the book on evangelicals and, and how they operate. But nonetheless, he's a very acute political observer, and he said the following about uh, Haley, and and how she actually needs to come out stronger, um, or at least she did, you know, before against Trump. L listen to him. Because if you're going to lose, at least lose saying what you believe and telling voters who it is that you really are and why you're different from the front runner, the favorite to be the nominee of your party. But she's not willing to do that. And I'm not sure whether it's because she thinks she has a chance to be as vice president or not. But it's just been sort of a shell of a campaign in many ways. What, what's your reaction and, and what does she need to sharpen up that she, distinction? I, I'm not sure if that's, yeah, I, I'm not sure if that's fair criticism. I've I had the chance in Iowa over the last five or six days to hear her three or four times. And she really goes after Trump on January 6th. She goes after him on being an election denier, which I think are two very critical points of this this guy's persona to say how... how you know, how irresponsible can you be on January 6th to egg those people on? But regardless of what his direct responsibility was, he sure was cheerleading those guys, those rioters. Mm -hmm. And then he's this huge election denier for several years where he's the, the sorest loser in the history of presidential politics. And he wants to drag the entire country into a debate about his loss. So she, I think, correctly held his feet to the fire on those two points. But... But she has a pleasant and professional demeanor. She's not a polemicist. She's not a screamer. She's not a yeller. So sometimes people want anger or want lightning bolts in a speech, and that's just not her style. She wants to, I think, command the room and share her insight with people, but do so in, a, in as pleasant a way as possible. So she's an engaging personality, if you ask me. I, I find it very appealing. So, obviously, the people who really don't want Trump to win, uh, and I'm talking about in the Republican Party, uh, want to see maybe 
Republicans such as herself, such as even Chris Sununu, um, you know, governor of, of, of New Hampshire, just say, we're not going to vote for Trump if he's the nominee. Not, none of them have said that yet. Um, they've, in fact, all doubled down that they will vote for him if he's the Republican nominee. Here's Chris Sununu, who's not a Trump MAGA type, but here he is. I'm going to support the Republican nominee, absolutely. Yeah, like that shouldn't shock anybody. That shouldn't be surprised to anybody that the Republican governor and most uh, actually of America is going to end up going against Biden because they need to see a change in this country. So, you know, they want to be on the winning team, right? Well, b by the way, Christiane, if I may say this, the one person, the one candidate who stepped back from that pledge to support the party was Donald Trump. Trump was the one who said when he's asked, are you going to support the Republican nominee? His response is always, we'll see. Yeah. Meaning typically, again, back to the sore loser attitude, typically his view is, look, if I'm not the nominee, somebody else must have cheated or stolen or done something terrible. And so I can't in good conscience support that person. So he has no concept of fair play or being a good sport. And all he does is castigate somebody who might creep by and buy a few percentage points in one of the votes. Um, can I ask you, because you have had positions abroad. Um, we met a long time ago in mm. Singapore, a really vibrant part of, of Asia right now. And I just want to ask you what you think last night's result for Trump, what kind of message does it telegraph to the world? Let me just, you know, the, the, the head of the ECB, former managing director of the IMF, Christine Lagarde, has said Trump is a threat to Europe. Um, you know, he has said that he won't come to Europe's aid if it was, you know, if it was attacked, that he would not necessarily deploy NATO, that maybe... He might even pull the U.S. out of NATO. Given how much is at stake on all those issues right now, what should the world be taking away and how should they prepare, and I'm talking about allies, for, you know, Trump-Biden? Well, in my experience in the Reagan administration, we believe we had a successful foreign policy uh, through, two, through tactics. One is uh, peace through strength, having a strong military, the second was international leadership. You're leading coalitions of allies, friends, like-minded nations. So these are all force multipliers for you. But it requires diplomacy, it requires interaction, it requires give and take because it's a management exercise with other sovereign countries. But by doing that, you're able to push back against Russia, push back against Iran, push back against China, North Korea, other countries that are bad actors. By the way, pretty much the same list we have today of folks who are just uh, troublemakers against U.S. interests or U.S. friends. So, uh, so my advice to anybody who wants to be president is focus on a strong military and focus on international leadership with like-minded nations. Mm -hmm. So one, one of your colleagues, Mike Murphy, who is, is I, maybe I think he was a Reagan Republican and he also is an analyst uh, and, a, and a, you know, an advisor these days. He says the current Republican activist corps, i.e. I guess MAGA, they, you know, who do the nominating, it's changed over the last 15 years. He said it doesn't uh, focus on the kind of policy that you've just been outlining. Uh, it wants the culture wars. It likes the name calling, the entertainment factor, the celebrity factor, you know, the ability to raise funds. But to do to do what? D do you agree that there is a sort of a, a huge policy vacuum amongst the, the MAGA Republicans? What, what do you think they actually stand for in terms of the good of America? Well, I, I think you're right in the party shift, society shifts over time. I think in my view, social media 
accelerates this because social media rewards the most pugnacious comment, even if it's not a, a mainstream or widely accepted comment. So I think it drags the whole conversation more toward theatrics or the fringe of the of the political uh, uh, polity. Uh, so, so I do think you have a deterioration in the in the debate. And you're right with discussion of woke issues or transgender issues. People will focus sometimes on reasonably minor activities, but but it alerts them or it alarms them, and they organize their life around something that is not a very common activity. So these these seemingly minor issues have sort of outsized role in political discussion. Instead of you go back a generation ago, the main discussion was how do we get the economy back on track, get economic growth going, get inflation down, get unemployment down, and just allow everybody to have a better life. That was sort of the center of the plate for, for Democrats and Republicans, and it doesn't seem to be the center of the plate today. So I guess one last question. What if Nikki Haley doesn't make it? Clearly, South Carolina, you've just said New Hampshire, but also South Carolina is her, you know, real mm. important testing ground, her own state. Uh, what do non-MAGA Republicans do next? What would you do next? Do you, do you push your support behind whoever's the nominee, including Trump? Well, I'll hold, I'll hold that thought. I'll hold that thought if you don't mind. I'm very optimistic about New Hampshire, Christiane. I think Nikki Haley's in very good shape for that. I want to do anything I can to be able to support the Republican nominee. But Nikki Haley is simply a better candidate, a better Republican, and to my mind, a better person. So we ought to get behind her. Frank Lavin, thank you so much indeed. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. And we turn now to a state of emergency in Ecuador, where the once peaceful country has descended into gang violence. Since 2018, the murder rate has quadrupled. Last year, a presidential candidate was assassinated, and around a quarter of the country's prisons were under gang control. Fast forward today, and the country's new young president, less than a couple of months into the job, has declared a war on gangs after the drug cartel leader known as Fito, 
escaped from prison, and his armed loyalists stormed a TV studio during a live broadcast, making all sorts of demands. The government says that it has now detained over 1,500 people and carried out more than 40 operations against what they call terrorist groups. To discuss all of this, the man in the hot seat himself, Ecuador's president, Daniel Noboa. He's joining me from the capital, Quito. And welcome to the program, Mr. President. Um, can I just start by asking you a very simple question? You have declared war on gangs. We've just described how very much power they have. Are you confident that you are in control of your country? Hello, thank you for having me here. Uh, first, I've declared war on terrorists. Uh, these are not conventional gangs. They are terrorist groups. They are uh, highly organized, structured, armed forces that terrorize uh, complete regions and have had control in the past few years of our nation's prisons. I'm confident that we can win this war. I'm confident that we can uh, restore peace and restore uh, stability in a country that has all, that has natural resources, that has a stable uh, dollarized economy, and that we can provide employment and attract investment in the near future. And just to say we have a slight delay, so our, our viewers will, will understand that, long distance and all the rest of it. Um, but how much of an issue is it for you in your fight, you call it terrorism, uh, others have called it, you know, fight against drug cartels, that the, the main perpetrator, this guy who's nicknamed Fito, appears to be still at large, and there are a certain, you know, 43 prisoners remaining at large after the crackdown. The fact of those people being at large, how difficult does that make your current operation? Uh, we are working uh, in an orderly manner. Uh, we have freed 170 hostages and we have restored stability in the prisons right now. We have one leader at large, we have another one which is uh, Colombico at large, and the rest we're tracking them down. Right now, the army and the police are working together, and the whole nation is united uh, to actually eliminate this threat. People want peace. People want to be able to walk uh, freely on the street, to have their own uh, business, to have uh, stability so that their kids can go to parks, can go to school, can go also uh, to the university, the older kids. And I believe that our operation is being successful at the moment. We are pr having uh, progress, and I'm sure that we will have a full victory at the end. I mean, you really do talk in war terms, victory, and militarization, the war, etc. So um, can, can you, what is your example, what is your sort of I guess plan. We know that there is a similar and there has been a similar um, war on on gangs, war on as they call it terror or drugs in El Salvador. Is, is that your example for how to continue and how to wage this fight? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, first, there's two different nations, two different realities, culturally, economically. Uh, secondly, I believe in something that I've talked since the campaign, 
that we need to take control of the country. We have over 30,000 members of these uh, narco-terrorist groups that are threatening the whole population. So we're militarizing the ports, we're protecting our borders, we're reestablishing control in our prisons, and at the same time, with intelligence, with the CS, with military intelligence, we're working on breaking the cycle and breaking the chain of financing also for these narco-terrorist groups. Uh, just to it's pick di- up It's on a different mm-hmm. reality, it's a different situation. Right, but the thing is... And I do Al- believe uh, that... Yeah? I do believe in democracy. I do believe in, uh, in a country being united. I've requested, without the obligation, the support of the parliament, which in a unanimous way supported uh, my decree. I've asked also the court to give us their opinion. They're supporting our, uh, our fight. So we are respecting the, difference, the different uh, powers of the state. And in a democratic way, we are fighting for peace. We're fighting for progress. I, you know, I ask you because many in El Salvador see their, you know, their, their method has been successful. They can now go back outside, eating at restaurants, walking around on the street. Even though it's a very brutal crackdown, um, it's effectively destroyed the gang problem there. Do you think you might ever be tempted to, to do that if you're having difficulty doing it the way you're doing now? I believe in the Ecuadorian way. And I believe in, in the Novoa way. So I think that we have our own style. We have our own way of, of governing in a democratic way. And we need to reestablish peace. And the moment that the people uh, just wish for me not to be here, I will gladly uh, leave and go back to my family, go back to my businesses. Let me ask you about the U.S. Obviously, the United States is is an ally. It sent some uh, top officials, uh, both from the military and from the State Department. And I'm wondering what you're hoping to to get from them, what kind of aid you need. And most specifically, do you plan to reopen a DEA base like there was in previous Ecuadorian governments uh, to deal with these problems? It's unconstitutional uh, to do so. We cannot have foreign bases in Ecuador according to our new constitution from 2008, but we can work together. We can have cooperation. We can have uh, the DEA work with the CS, work with the anti-narcotics police here, and help us uh, fight against these uh, terrorist groups, which are, have a lot of money, have a lot of resources, have a lot of guns. So we need... Uh, we need international cooperation. I would gladly accept uh, cooperation from the U.S. We need equipment, we need weapons, we need intelligence, and uh, I think that this is a global problem. It's not only in Ecuador. This is a problem that you know, goes beyond borders. About 35-40% of the drugs that come out of Ecuador go to the States, another mm-hmm. similar percentage to Europe. So this has to be treated as an international problem. Well, explain then to our viewers a little bit, because your country does not 
produce the kind of drugs that are in question, does not produce cocaine, and yet you, your countries become implicated. Is that because of the surrounding countries? We know there's a, a big problem in a state of emergency in parts of Peru. Uh, you know, Colombia obviously has had a major drug-producing part of the economy there. Mexican cartels appear to be helping the Ecuadorian gun, uh, gangs and cartels. Explain why Ecuador became caught in this. Uh, there are similar elements. I think there were uh, weak institutions, number one. Uh, number two, if you're a dollarized economy, it's easier to purchase, transport uh, drugs. There's no currency exchange. So we use the dollar, uh, which is the international currency for drugs. We have to uh, say it as it is. Also, the fact that Ecuador is a it's an exporter of refrigerated goods and of food. The port of Guayaquil is the third largest port in Latin America in terms of volumes. It's number one is Santos in Brazil, number two is Manzanillo in Mexico, number three is Guayaquil, Ecuador. So it's an, a, a logistics hub uh, for the whole region. It's a dollarized economy. And I think that these uh, narco-terrorist groups, international groups, have taken advantage of this situation. Right now, we're trying to reestablish order with strong institutions, with international cooperation, and with more clear laws about what is allowed and not allowed. And just to pick up on, you know, you clearly made a call for more equipment, all sorts of things that you need from the United States or elsewhere to help you with this. Do you have enough? Is your military, which has been set on this issue, confident that it has the equipment to, to wage this war, as you call it? I'm proud of, my, of, of our armed forces as well as uh, the national police, but we do need help. This is uh, the reality. We do need help in equipment, in training. We do need additional help in, in, uh, in weapons. And uh, we're not you know, ashamed of saying so. We have a very strong military and police, but we'll always need international cooperation for an international problem. And finally, Mr. President, you alluded to this, obviously, where there is a demand, there is supply and, and et cetera, and your country is caught up as well as other Latin American countries. So it appears that many believe that the war on drugs globally has failed and that there are many countries and more politicians moving to essentially legalize more and more drugs. Do you think that is the answer, even when it comes to something like cocaine or other such things? I don't think that's the answer, especially not for cocaine. Uh, I do believe that we need to strengthen our health system, we need to strengthen our social services, and we need uh, to help the people. Uh, first of all, we need to give, uh, give the Ecuadorian family an opportunity to progress, to give an opportunity to have you know, a better life. And I don't think that uh, the solution is to legalize drugs. President Daniel Noboa, thank you so much indeed for joining us from Quito in Ecuador. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. 
At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now we turn to Israel. For months, the international community has voiced concern over the lack of vision by the Israeli government for what happens after the war. However, some Israelis have a very clear plan. That's to resettle the Gaza Strip. Israel unilaterally evacuated in 2005, but nearly two decades later, some on Israel's extreme religious and nationalistic right see the aftermath of October 7th as an opportunity, as Jomana Karadshe reports now. It was a moment of division, pain and trauma for many Israelis. 2005, the end of Gush Katif. A cluster of Israeli settlements in Gaza dismantled by the government. Thousands of settlers forced out of their homes under the disengagement law that saw an end to Israel's presence in the Gaza Strip. But after nearly two decades of yearning for a return, the movement to do so now appears more emboldened than ever. Among no less than Israeli troops themselves, social media is now awash in images like these. One of Israel's most popular musicians, to the cheers of troops, sings about that return. <laughs> and moving the Nova Festival, scene of a Hamas massacre, to Gaza's beaches. And in recent weeks from inside Gaza, soldiers proudly displaying the orange color of protest against the 2005 disengagement. Here, soldiers with a banner that reads, only settlement would be considered victory. And in this video, troops announcing the symbolic re-establishment of a former settlement. Amen. Jewish sovereignty, Jewish governance, and of course, Jewish people being able to live in this ancestral piece of land. Uh, Arabs, if they are post-Jihad pro-Israel and want to live that good life in, in that beautiful soil, there should be an opportunity for that. But anti-Israel, pro-Jihad Arabs have got to leave. And they're going to have to find a different place to go. A poll of Gazans conducted just before October 7th showed that 44% had no trust in Hamas, 23% had little trust. From the front lines, a message to the Prime Minister. We are occupying, deporting and settling. Do you hear that, Bibi? Occupying, deporting and settling. Bibi, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, has yet to unveil his government's plans for post-war Gaza. On the eve of last week's court hearing in The Hague, with Israel facing South Africa's accusations of genocide, he released this English-language statement. Israel has no intention of permanently occupying Gaza or displacing its civilian population. But those calls for expelling Gazans and reviving settlements are coming from powerful far-right members of his coalition. We will not be able to rule there without re-establishing a settlement. The majority of them want to emigrate. They just need to be allowed to do it. The comments have been concerning enough to draw rebuke from U.S. and Arab governments, and many within Israel who say they're widely unacceptable. But voices of the movement are growing louder by the day. Ultranationalist and religious parties bringing that discussion into the Knesset. 
While these voices are by no means a majority in Israel, they are powerful and have been advancing their extremist agenda. The ideas that often seem very extreme at a certain phase in Israel's history can over time become increasingly normalized, very incrementally. Palestinians fear this is the unspoken plan. There is only one solution for the Gaza Strip. Gaza has become unlivable. The north, a decimated wasteland. Around half of all buildings across Gaza damaged or destroyed. Nearly its entire population forced to move time and time again. 1.9 million people squeezed into a tiny part of the enclave, not knowing if they'll ever be allowed to return to their homes. And the far right has been promoting relocating Palestinians as a humanitarian idea. We must promote a solution to encourage the emigration of the residents of Gaza. This is a correct, just, moral and humane solution. For that, Israel is facing accusations of violating international laws, acts that could amount to genocide. There's an opening for those uh, ministers, uh, media people, and so forth on the Israeli right to say, well, the most humanitarian solution is to remove that population or to um, encourage them, as they say, to move out of Gaza. If that happens, then this entire scenario that I'm talking about will be seen as ethnic cleansing. Um, and ethnic cleansing is always on the verge of genocide. A view rejected by the likes of Hebron settler leader and returned to Gush Katif activist Tishai Fleischer. It is a time of opportunity to change more people's minds here in Israel uh, and to bring more unity and brotherhood in our peoplehood. Do you feel that this vision, what you believe in, what should happen, has become more of a possibility, more realistic right now? post-October 7th? I'd love to think so, yes. But uh, Israel is in very much in conversation right now. There's definitely a think-out happening. People are, like, waking up to, to uh, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to open their minds. Hebron settler Yishai Fleischer ending that report. Now, as we heard earlier in the show, in Iowa, Trump strengthened his position as the GOP's frontrunner. But what keeps Republicans so loyal? One person who has explored Trump's personality is New York Times columnist Zeynep Tufekci. Her latest piece is a strongman president. These voters crave it. And she joins Hari Srinivasan to reflect on his appeal at this critical moment. Christian, thanks. Zainab Tufekci, thanks so much for being here. Yesterday, we saw a pretty decisive victory for Donald Trump, even though his opponents campaigned a lot longer, harder, spent more money, perhaps. What, what do you make of that? In some ways, it's not surprising, but it is one more marker that the current Republican Party is Trump's. Uh, we have seen a lot of efforts to unseat him, and we have seen this in 2016, where a lot of... Um, Republican contenders try to get the nomination instead of him. That was not successful. And remarkably, despite everything that has happened since he uh, was voted out of office, he has an enduring bond with much of the Republican base. And I think what's happened is they don't want Trump light or a Trump replacement or someone like Trump. They want Trump. 
You wrote a piece in the New York Times this week, uh, and it was called A Strongman President, These Voters Crave It. Tell me, what was at the center of that story? So um, in 2016, when a lot of um, commentary around Trump's early candidacy was that he's just a celebrity, he's just, you know, joking, he'll go away. I had gone to Trump rallies and I had also talked to a lot of Trump supporters. And instead of a bumbling celebrity, which is what I had expected to find, I, I found a politician who was very much in touch with his base and he was realigning the politics of the GOP around a couple of issues like trade, immigration, uh, loss of manufacturing. And it was a very powerful message. So eight years later, I wanted to understand, has this changed? Is this something that uh, is now a different kind of dynamic? Are the voters just curious about him? Are they looking for an alternative? And what I found after talking to a large number of voters, um, more than 100, in Iowa and New Hampshire, but also following uh, activities online and talking with other voters elsewhere who want to support Trump, what I found is that they see him as a strong leader. And they see President Biden as a weak leader in contrast, but they also see the other Republican candidates as weak. So what they want in their telling is that they want somebody who's strong enough to stand up to everything that's going on in the world and also stand up to what they perceive as the Washington establishment that's against Trump. And he's selling that message. That's the message that he goes with. And he has a bond with the base. And when you ask them about you know, his vulgar language, the things he says, the way he talks about, say, immigrants or his political opponents. What they say to me is all politicians talk like that. They're corrupt and they say all sorts of things, but only Trump kind of blurts it out. So even things that to a non-supporter are alarming are seen by these people as he's strong enough just to say it. He's authentic enough just to say it. And remarkably, they also think that um, had Trump been president, that the war in Ukraine might not have happened, that uh, the Hamas attack would not have happened, because in their worldview, the Trump's, they acknowledge somewhat crazy sometimes, somewhat uh, unpredictable behavior, they think, will project strength and fear in the rest of the world, and they wouldn't dare because they'd be afraid of him. And additionally, and finally, they, to a last person, will cite the economic conditions under Trump being as better, especially inflation and uh, mortgage rates come up a lot as an objective thing. But I think it really comes down to they see him as an authentic strongman that they find uh, a lot of attraction to, and they're not going away from that bond. So what are the similarities that you see to say how uh, former President Trump casts himself versus, say, uh, Duterte in the Philippines or Orban in Hungary or Erdogan in Turkey? Right. So one of the things that um, I think is striking 
across all of these uh, leaders that you just mentioned is that they have a base that they do protect through both patronage and welfare state and safety net. In fact, one of the misunderstandings about Trump is that he would be like a regular Republican in terms of you know targeting Medicare or Social Security. Just quite the opposite. He talks about you know his opponents. Uh, Florida Governor DeSantis and Nikki Haley as the kind of people that would target welfare uh, or, you know, uh, would target uh, Social Security and Medicare. They don't see that as uh, they see those as deserved. Uh, And he also talks about in these I alone can fix it. I am the person who will take care of you. Uh, I am the leader that will look out for your interests in a world, as he would put it, And as these other leaders would put it, everybody else is against us. So he's channeling a certain kind of anger, a certain kind of disaffection. Uh, Like with many of these other leaders, there's a us and them. And the them, for example, in Orban's Hungary is the immigrants. In Trump, there's a lot of that uh, as well. So it depends on, you know, what part of the world you're looking at. So there's a deserving people. There is an other to blame. And there is these elites that have, um, in their view, sold out the people, the deserving people. And here comes a strong leader to come and take care of you, to provide a safety net for you, to keep you safe in a tumultuous world. And I have to say, historically speaking, this is with so much precedent. This has happened again and again in history, that strong men come through um, popular support through a mix of exploiting disaffection, you know, pointing the finger at some uh, enemy that is easy for their base to rally around demagoguery and all these details that we worry about, perhaps in terms of the uh, separation of powers, liberal democracy, uh, you know, journalists in jail in a lot of these examples that you have spoken about are not high on these people's list. And here we are. So, you know, th- that leads me to something that, um, Trump said that he would only be dictator on day one. And I don't know how much of that was a joke or not, but the Biden campaign has certainly picked up on that idea and that theme. And they are trying to make the case to their voters and the American voter that democracy is at stake. The alternative is authoritarianism and dictatorship and strongmen and so forth. And I wonder, the people that you are speaking to at the rallies that you're attending, that what you're watching online, Does that resonate at all with them? Well, let's start with that comment. So, I mean, I think it's fairly straightforward to point to a lot of worries about democracy, especially what we consider liberal democracy, which is not just a majoritarian role. You don't just have, you know, whoever gets in power gets to do what they want. We have limits and checks and balances. And you can point to a lot of things in that regard from Trump's first term uh, and also the conflict of interest, you know, the hotels, all those things. You can make a lot of cases. But let's take that particular quote, right? Uh, the In that interview, Trump said, I'm going to be a dictator for day one, and I'm going to um, sort of have a rule on uh, the border, and we're going to drill, drill, baby, drill. And he was referring to, like, doing executive uh, orders on day one. And then he said... I will then not be a dictator anymore, right? So that was the context. So I felt like this is the kind of thing where um, instead of picking 
many of the other examples about Trump that the Biden administration could have picked, they picked one in which he was not really coming and saying, I am going to be a dictator, right? He was saying, I'm going to pass executive orders. So I asked about this to many people and they knew this, right? So they would say, well, the media says, you know, Trump's going to be a dictator, but I watched the whole clip. Now, I'm not here defending Trump, right? Like when I point this out, a lot of people get mad at me because they want me to say, well, Trump will be a dictator. I'm not trying to deny at all that there is genuine concern about rule of law, separation of powers, conflict of interest. But that particular quote is not really playing with these people because when they, you watch the whole video in that particular moment, like it's not like he's got some confession to make that somebody caught him on tape. Uh, he's saying something about executive orders, right? So there's other arguments, of course, to be made on election denial. There's arguments to be made on January 6th. There's arguments to be made on, um, especially I think his conflict of interest and making money from the hotels from foreign governments and uh, all the emoluments clause. Those things have kind of not really been talked about as much. And I would, I challenged a lot of these voters because I wanted to hear what they would say back. And in that, when I challenged them, what I heard was that they would first point to something about traditional media where they had alpha point, right? Like this is a little bit of a misrepresentation here. He didn't really say that there. So they would first present some issue that I would say, yeah, maybe you got half a point, but next step would be to deny or to question uh, if January 6th had happened with, um, you know, from Trump's involvement or Trump's encouragement or even Trump supporters. I heard everything from, well, it was a couple of bad apples and that happens to maybe it was entrapment, the government allowed it. And there, they're in their information bubble, right? They do not really trust um traditional media. And they hear it from their talk radio, they hear it from their TV stations, they hear it on YouTube and, you know, current X, X, X Twitter came up a lot. So it's not sinking, right? It is not something that at least this group of people are um, either hearing or concerned about. And in, additionally, they would very often point to me all the other executive orders that you know current presidents use. And everything is happening through executive orders. That's not very democratic. So they say, let it be our guy, right? So they sort of say, okay, let it be our guy. And he has a way of talking to these people that is underrated in how effective it is. I think if you're not a Trump supporter and you go sit there, it's very hard to sort of, you might not feel it, right? Because if you're not a Trump supporter, you're not feeling that. Because it takes a little bit of effort to try to step back and say, okay, how does this feel to people who do like him, right? And to people who like him, to people who are at least open to him, he comes across, in my eight years of talking with Trump supporters, he comes across as genuine and authentic. Do you think that there's been a shift in how his supporters perceive the events of January 6th? Has there been an increased tolerance for violence or a justification of what happened over time? So in my own conversations, I did not find a single person who defended it, 
right? I don't doubt there are people who think it was justified because Trump really plays up the election was stolen. So if you genuinely believe that there's a nefarious force stealing elections, um, you know, that kind of creates a what's justified kind of question. So perhaps because they were talking to me, uh, or perhaps because of the kind of base there is in Iowa, New Hampshire, and other places, I did not encounter anyone saying, oh, it was great, it was justified. Yeah. But what I did encounter was explaining away, downplaying, bad apples, or um, some degree of a conspiracy that this was the deep state or federal government or Trump enemies or this or that, that's where it gets into the conspiracy part, that aided and abetted and allowed this to happen as a form of entrapment, which um, you know comes from a lot of the conspiracy theories that you encounter about what happened. So. And they don't really, I mean, given that, I don't think they're like rooting for a redo of that, yeah. but it, it's not gonna dissuade them either. So once again, the question perhaps is not what the most diehard supporters of Trump think, right? Like those people may just be completely attached to him and that might be that, and he's got that. The question to understand is there's a large part of the country, and this is kind of, I think, what people need to understand and hear is that if you look at the polls, currently, the majority of the country thinks that Trump would do a better job on the economy. They think Trump would do a better job on foreign policy. And they think that Trump would do a better job on immigration compared to President Biden. Right. And this is not like once you get to that kind of majorities, you're not talking about, you know, Trump's diehard supporters. You're talking about the kind of coalitions that cause elections to be lost. Had these people who are, your, your piece focuses on, the ones who are kind of gravitating towards uh, a stronger leader, were they there in 2020? What's different about the 2024 electorate? Are there more of them now? Has Biden pushed people more towards that camp? What's different? I think in 2020, a large chunk of the country had um, been tired of Trump's presidency. And you still have to remember, like, it wasn't a huge margin. Like, it, yeah. he could have plausibly won. It was not a huge margin. But it was not as much of a win in a landslide sense as one would think, given all that happened. So the second thing is a lot of things happened under President Biden's um administration. And I think, again, inflation is a major thing. And Ukraine war and even the Middle East situation uh, happened under his watch. And you might say he doesn't run the world. It doesn't work like that. And I wouldn't disagree. But to his supporters and to some people, it looks like when Trump was president, people were scared to oppose him. That's what they say. And they also, the counterfactuals, it didn't happen. And the third thing I think that people, once again, are um, underestimating is the effect of age. Now, we have, I think, 78 versus 81 by the time November comes around, when uh, if it's Biden versus Trump. That is a strikingly old matchup. So there is that. And in some sense, you might say, well, their ages are close to one another. It is both strikingly 
uh, older than average presidential candidates, and that's true. But the the polls are very clear. President Biden is age is seen as a much bigger liability to him than Trump's age is seen to him. It's perhaps like his aggressive behavior, perhaps it's the way, you know, Trump sort of his rallies, the way he talks, the way he comes across. Like, I'm not going to try to explain exactly why that is, but it's really clear to me from talking to people and looking at the polls that people see President Biden's age as something that makes him weaker and less competent compared to they have the same criteria for you know Trump. So four years ago, it wasn't like, you know, we weren't talking about 81, we we're talking about, you know, 77, 78. Yeah. So it's, um, I think that's a big part of the mix of where things are right now. Zainab Tufekce, professor of sociology and public affairs at Princeton. Thanks so much for joining us. Yes. Thank you for inviting me. And finally tonight, an important update on the story we've been reporting ever since Iran's woman life freedom movement started. Two Iranian journalists imprisoned for their coverage of the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini have now been released on bail. Amini died in the custody of Iran's morality police in 2022 after being arrested for allegedly not wearing her hijab properly. Now, Nilufar Hamedi and Elahe Mohammadi brought the news of Masa's, um, Masa's death to Iran and the world, and they have been freed from prisons. Protests back then quickly spread with women demanding more freedoms. The reporters were swiftly arrested and spent over 400 days in prison. Both still face multiple charges that could technically carry the death penalty. And we will continue to follow this closely as ever. And a quick programming note. On Saturday, you can watch the brand new Amanpour Hour from 11 a.m. on America's East Coast, 5 p.m. in Central Europe. We'll bring context, conversation and analysis of our world with newsmakers, cultural icons and the best of CNN in the field. Also taking your questions about events shaping our future. So scan the QR code on your screen or email askamanpour at cnn.com. The Amanpour Hour airs Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Central Europe, only here on CNN. And that's it for now. Thank you for watching. Goodbye from London. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.